We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala. We seek blessings on the Prophet, peace be upon him. Uh, I guess you guys are all sitting. Okay, you, you can all hear me if I talk at this voice? Yeah, okay. So, so my assignment is to talk about taboo topics. And the key five topics that we'll be talking about later in this are sexual promiscuity and then things associated with that like STDs and sexual health. Suicide and issues associated with that, like self-harm. Uh, domestic abuse, and then eating disorders and beauty standards, and then homosexuality. Not necessarily in that order, but these are some of the big topics that we're exploring as taboo topics, and I'm happy more to jump in to anything else um, that any of you may want to discuss over the course of these next two hours, inshallah. Now first, <clears throat> I want us to establish some foundations, and in that process, that will help us to have proper perspective on, on these issues, okay? So the first one, which might seem basic, but just to put everybody on the same page, is that when we say there is no ilah but Allah, right? So we often say no God but God, capital G. But what else are we saying there? We're saying that I will, as a person, take something as an ilah, okay? Whether I realize it or not, I may claim to take Allah as my ilah, I may take the Supreme Being as my ilah, yet, if you look at my practices, I might be turning to something else. And the easiest example of that is that if we look at the United States, the vast majority population would be people who self-identify as Christian, then you have small populations of Jews, Muslims, Hindus, non-believers, Buddhists, etc., etc., right? But anybody who knows America will tell you what is one of the big ilahs of America. How would you answer that? Money. Money, definitely. Yeah, and notice how many people all said it, right? That I might claim to be Muslim, okay, but if you look at how I spend my day, my week, my year, and look at what's going on in my heart, my reliance might be more on money than on God, right? So when we say there is no ilah but Allah, there is no God, lowercase g, but God, capital G, we are saying that everyone takes something as a God. Um, even an atheist is taking something as a god. Now, what else in our culture might be people be taking as gods? How would you answer that question? Sorry? Yeah, totally. How? How would people be taking celebrities as gods? Yeah, so, so you might feel that a certain celebrity transcends humanity, and you don't see them as human anymore. Right? Uh, I think that's especially common in different ages, uh, especially when you're younger, but I think it also happens more than people want to uh, admit to themselves as they get older, that we define ourselves very much according to a particular list of celebrities. Right? Now, what else do people take as ilahs in our society? Leadership. So it could be uh, their leadership, it could be their particular tribe. Right? When we're speaking of something like white supremacy, you're essentially taking your race as your ilah, right? That, what does it mean? It's going to keep you out of danger, keep you safe. It's going to keep you clear thinking. It's going to keep you out of despair, and it'll give you a source of, uh, it'll give you comfort, all these things. Uh, people will definitely look to their tribe, right? Well, somebody here was raising a hand. Why were you raising your hand? I'd say potentially in the sense that we're saying that the rule of law in our society comes from people, mm -hmm. and the people who founded our society 
Um, they themselves were, what was the religion of Thomas Jefferson? He's a deist. He was a deist. Explain for us what is a deist. Like you believe in God, but not like Yeah. science. God is a scientist. So basically, yeah. So God starts everything, okay, and then the whole universe starts moving, but he's not involved in our lives, which means you're not going to have miracles, right? Which then means it's our responsibility to make things happen. It's our responsibility to make, make a society. But built into that, this is part of the whole enlightenment thinking, which is that my intellect essentially becomes my ilah, right? And from there, the theories of how to, how to have an ideal society and who is a citizen, who is not a citizen, right? Um, and that also relates to what we're going to talk about, especially when we get into eating disorders and such. And so I'd say it's not, in our society, it's not so much the rule of law, but it's the human intellect is taken as an ilah, right? I'd also say one of the big ilahs of our society is your hawa. What's your hawa? Yeah, your desires, your whims and desires. The idea that, okay, I got this appetite and I have to fulfill it now, right? Whether it's an appetite for buying something, like I just have to buy something now, and then I get it, and then I feel the rush, you know, it might be like some dopamine, and then it goes away, and then I have to buy something again soon, right? Or it could be sexual appetite, it could be attention, it could be whatever else, and it's basically... I wind up becoming my own ilah. Uh, even though I might self-identify as Muslim, right? I might think that I'm doing a really good job as a Muslim, but if you look at how I live my life, it's literally driven by my whims. Okay? So what am I saying? Number one, everybody takes something as an ilah, and you might even take multiple things as an ilah. Yes? So, for example, let's say I'm pretty consistent in making all my prayers. I'm pretty consistent, assalamu alaikum, at uh, making all my fasts and all my, uh, you know, my five pillars, I'm fulfilling all of them, right? But in my prayer, you know, I'm concentrating on everything else in the world, which is common, right? But then if you look at my, my other behaviors, you, you, if you look at what seems to be motivating me, um, that will help me figure out what is it that I'm at least obeying, right? You know, like a lot of advertisement says, obey your thirst, okay? And so is my thirst defining my behavior? Because so, so to take that point a step further, um, this is about, about um, a little over, it's about uh, two-fifths of the way into Al-Baqarah, the second surah, where the, the children of Israel are told to uh, obey Allah, to obey God, and then they say, we listen and we disobey, okay? And then the rest of the ayah says, that's because of the love of the calf is in your heart, okay? So what happened with the children of Israel, the, the generation of Moses, peace be upon him? They started turning to the calf in worship, right? And, and so what happens when you take something as an ilah? It starts defining your whole moral system. So if I take money as my God, okay, then iman, you know, faith in money will be whatever it is that will help me get closer to money, right? Which could be, you know, working, could be stealing, what have you, right? And then think of something like lying. Okay, well, if I lie on my resume, that will result in me getting more money, so it's probably okay. See what I'm saying? If I'm saying God is my God, then, yeah, okay, I can't lie. And if I don't lie... I may not get the job, but God is still going to take care of me. See what I'm saying? Right? So it'll, it'll form your entire theology. It'll form your whole morality, whatever it is you're taking as a God. Okay. 
And we're saying everybody takes something. Okay? And the big ones we said in our society would be like money, your tribe, your, your, your whims and desires, celebrities, etc. Right? But the biggest one, I think, in our society is money. Okay? And so, so that's the first point. You do take something as an ilah. Second point, when we're saying the shahada, that there is no ilah but Allah, there is no God but God, we're also saying nothing can truly fulfill the need that you have except for God. So I may turn to something like money, and it may give me a quick fix in terms of my needs. And what are some of these core needs relate to the definition of the word ilah? The need to be taken from danger to safety, the need to be taken from despair into hope, the need to be taken from con uh, confusion into clarity, the need for comfort. Okay? All these are innate needs that a person has that you're going to rely upon something for. And we're saying whatever it is you turn to other than God will not fulfill it thoroughly. So let's say I turn to alcohol to get me out of despair. And so every day, first it starts out on the weekends, and then it becomes every night, and then it becomes even all day, I'm turning to the bottle. Why? To get me out of despair. Is alcohol going to put me into hope? Maybe, but eventually the intoxication is going to go away, right? And then I'm back in the depressed situation, the miserable situation that I was in, and then I'm going to need more, right? And then I'm back in the situation that I'm going to need even more, and then eventually it becomes an addiction. And perhaps an addiction becomes synonymous with taking something as an ilah, right? Because when it reaches the point of an addiction, now you're forming your whole life around it, right? And so the second key point is that anything you turn to other than God cannot truly fulfill these innate needs. They might give you, like I said, a short-term fix, but it's not going to last, okay? So, so that's the first part of the shahada. The second part, meaning the declaration of faith, the second part, Muhammad being the messenger of God. Keep in mind, you can't separate that in terms of Islam. Islam is not just one God. Islam is one God who is communicating with us uh, with the final communication being Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. And so then he becomes the standard, okay? the standard of perfection. Okay? Now, why does that become important? Because one of the blessings of his existence is that we have so much more, not just the Quran, but so much more of his teachings. And I'm saying this from an objective secular level. If you haven't done this and you probably haven't tried this, purely like pretend there's no Islam, pretend there's no, no God or anything. Okay? Read through a collection of hadith of the Prophet, peace be upon him. Read through a collection of his teachings and just use your own reasoning to decide, are these the words of a smart man? Okay. I'll tell you, as speaking as someone who's read a bit uh, across all kinds of different cultures and philosophies, I'll say no question, this is, these are the words of someone who is far more intelligent than I am, right? And I'm saying this with tremendous appreciation for all the dead white guys of Europe, right? Whether we talk about Shakespeare or Freud or, or Max Weber, I appreciate their brilliance, okay? And then we're all very familiar with the dark side of many of their, dark side is an interesting choice of word, of many of, many of their outlooks. But I'm telling you that, uh, objectively speaking, uh, that the prophet, peace be upon him, and his ability to speak in very concise language to make hugely profound points. Uh, for me, I find uh, him to be just mind-bogglingly brilliant. I mean, it'd be one thing if it was a couple chapters of a, of, a, of, a, of a book, but it's chapter upon chapter upon chapter upon chapter upon chapter. Now, why am I saying that? That one of the gifts of the way that the divine speaks with us is that we have this huge abundance of teachings. 
When you're raised as Muslim, sometimes it seems like a huge burden of teachings. But what I'm saying is that if you look at these as rahmah, as mercy from the divine, I mean, we have pages upon pages upon pages of amazingly profound teachings. And what do they basically give you? How to live your life, right? How to navigate life. That's what religion does. Religion does a number of, of other things, like it helps you uh, make sense of the unknown. It helps you make sense of a big picture, right? All those things. Um, it prepares you, it tells you what's going to come after you die and prepares you for that. But I'm saying even from a secular level, forget, you know, that there is a God. Pretend that, you know, there, there is no God if it's possible. And what does religion give you? It helps you how to navigate life, okay? And so I'm saying moving from the concept of one ilah to actually put into practice, that's the prophet, peace be upon him, okay? Another point. And, and there's only a few big key points that we're going to start out with, is that <clears throat> in terms of your design, the most simplest way to look at yourself is that your body and soul, right? That you have your physical material existence. You also have this thing called the ruh, your soul. And your soul is not of this world, okay? right? Your soul is from beyond this world, which means what? There will be a part of you that will never fit into this world. Okay. There will be a part of you that will always be a square peg in the round hole of this world. There will be, always be a part of you that will not be satisfied in this world. Okay. And, and thus, there will be a part of you that will always be yearning for completion. Okay. So your physical body, you can say, is from this world. But your soul, it's from something beyond this world. And even think about this for a moment. Every one of you has a consciousness right now. Where's your consciousness located? Is it like in your head? Is it in your brain? Who knows? I mean, like if you were, like, take a moment really quickly, and as soon as I tap, do what, I, what, uh, what I'm going to ask you to do. Okay, point to yourself. Interesting. Okay, some of you pointed to your face. Ahant, what'd you point to? Think, oh, you pointed to your chest. What'd you point to, Aisha? Neck. neck. What did you point to? Chest. Chest. Neck. Neck. Chin, I think. I mean, but okay. Somewhere, somewhere everyone's pointing somewhere around here. Doug, where'd you point? <coughs> yeah, uh, that's social conditioning. Right. Uh, I remember this exercise with a Chinese student. She pointed here. Right. Why here? Doug, tell us. Uh, okay, 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 right, right, right. So, so there's a special region right here that's basically oh, yeah, you. The key, the yeah, the key. key. Yeah, the chi, right? And so, so uh, that is social conditioning. But the point I'm raising is think Actually, about. Everyone from the East. Yeah, more or less. Yeah, yeah, from, from East Asia. Yeah. Specifically from China. Specifically from China, they'll point there? Okay, interesting. So, so the point being that there is this part of you that you can't really measure as being part of this world. You can measure your height, your weight, your dimensions and stuff. Your soul you can't measure. And Allah Ta'ala says in the Quran, we don't know much about it except a little. Okay? But it's something that's not of this world. But I'm saying that because there's this aspect of you that's not from this world, that then creates yearning. Okay? An innate thirst that everyone has as part of our design. Okay? So the core yearning is actually to get closer to God. Okay? 
And so this is, this is uh, you find this in much of our Sufi literature, but if you read in Rumi's big poetry collection, Masnavi, read the first tale. It's called The Tale of the Reed. It's this reed flute uh, saying, no one understands my pain. People are coming to listen to me, but no one understands what I'm really saying. And what, do I, what am I really saying? I want to go back to the source, the reed bed. Okay? And what is it that's driving me? It's love that's driving me to, to go back to this reed bed. And so what is this, the metaphor? It's saying basically every one of us innately, we want to go back to God. That is our innate need, our innate yearning. So for example, what do you say uh, when you're Muslim, what do you say when you lose something? What are you told to say? Inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi rajun. Yeah, I guess a particular dua. Yeah. Right, so indeed we are from Allah, and indeed to him is a return. Somebody dies, you say that, right? You put this on Facebook, my grandmother dies, and 50,000 people will say, you know, from God do we come, from God do we return. A lot of times it's cut and pasted, you know, to, to seem all pious and everything. But what we're also saying, this is not a statement of pain only, but it's a statement of hope. It's a statement of pain, and it's a statement of hope. Pain that you are separated from God. Hope to be reunited with him. Okay? And all this will start making sense when we get into these, these illnesses. Okay? So we're saying you have this innate yearning, and the actual yearning is to go back to God. That is your core yearning. But, number one, you may not know that that's what your core yearning is. You just feel this this yearning, this desire, this emptiness, whatever it is you want to call it, whatever it is you want to call it. Or you may feel you may be uh, someone of faith and you're taught, here's what you use, but you may not know then, you may know that you want to get closer to God, but you don't know how to do it. Good. But the point is that everyone has this, and we'll do a very, very simple exercise that some of you have done with me. I want you to think of something that you would like that you can have by the, uh, immediately after leaving this place. Okay. Think of something. Maybe it's a drink of water. Maybe it's to see someone. Maybe it's to talk to someone. Whatever it is. Think of something that you would like to have as soon as you leave this place. Okay. You're not going to tell us what it is, but everyone have something? Okay. I want you to focus on that thing, whatever it is, for the next 10 seconds. Okay. Just focus on this thing. That you can have, inshallah, God willing, in, you know, um, immediately after leaving this. Okay, begin. Just focus on this thing that you desire. Okay, were you able to do it? Okay. So now what I want you to do, I want you to focus on the desire itself. Not the thing, so let's say I really want a drink of water. Focus on the thirst for it, the desire for the water, okay? So try to focus on the desire again for about 10 seconds, okay? Begin. Okay, able to do it? Here? You're like, no, nah, it was too complicated. Sana? You're like, no, nah, it's too complicated. Donna? Yeah, a little bit? Where you're saying here, you're, you're like, all my desires have been fulfilled. I'm in nirvana. I'm sorry? You're like, I just have everything. I don't need to. Okay. 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 Then we'll make it a little bit deeper. I want you to focus on something that you really wish you could have, uh, but it's going to take a lot of effort to get it. You got something? Okay. Don't tell us what it is. 
right? Got something? Yeah, yeah. Bleed? Yeah. Uh-huh, you got something? Okay. All right, so focus on that thing that you want that's gonna take a lot of effort to get and focus on it for the next 10 seconds. Begin. Okay, able to do it? Yeah, Abdul Kala's like, yeah, I've done this before. I know what's going on. <laughs> Were you able to do it, Hera? Okay, okay. Now we're gonna make it even harder. I want you to focus on something that you, and this is gonna be very, very tender, okay? I want you to focus on something you really, really, really wish you could have, but for whatever reason, you probably can't have it, okay? And it's so tender that you don't even like thinking about it. For example, suppose someone has passed away and you really wish you could be reunited with them, okay? Or suppose, and for, for undergrads uh, often, and I'm saying this seriously, not, not facetiously, sometimes it's validation from your parents, okay? Think of something you really wish you could have, okay? And don't tell us what it is, everybody have something? You two in the corner, you got something? Yeah, okay. Uh-huh, got something? Okay, and, and so now focus on that thing that you really wish you could have, okay? For the next 15 seconds, begin. Okay, stop. Able to do it? Yeah, this one's a little bit more tough because this is something we censor ourselves from. And so what else are we saying here? That you have this innate yearning okay, for, for many, many things. But some of these yearnings, because they're painful, and pain could be because you know you can't have it in this world, or because you're not confident you can have it in this world, you might censor yourself from it. Okay? But if you believe that God can do all, there's some of these things that we don't need to censor ourselves from, even though they're painful. There's some things, like if I'm seeking to be reunited uh, with someone who's passed away, then I'm, I'm going to have to wait till I'm on the other side, right? But there are many other things that I've just prayed for it so many times, and it just hurts. I don't want to do it anymore. Then that's a test of faith, okay? Now, <clears throat> what else we're saying? We're saying that the core of what I'm actually seeking is to get closer to Allah, but that manifests in all these other ways, okay? Now what we're saying here is that this yearning that you have innately is the fuel for something else, which I'll talk about in a second. I want you to focus on that thing again, but not the object that you're hoping for, but again, hope, uh, focus on that painful yearning. So again, let's say I am, I really wish I could be reunited with this person in my family who's died, and it hurts even to think about it. Focus on the desire for it, okay? So everyone able to do that? So you're focusing on the desire, that need, that yearning. Okay, begin. Okay, stop. Able to do it? Now you make all of your prayers with that yearning. 
Okay. So if you're praying for something as small as your shoelaces, pray for it with that yearning. Whatever it is you're praying for, job, grade, family, you pray for it with that yearning. Because the one thing that you have that God does not have is need. Okay. That God is the one who owns the heavens and the earth, and the one thing you have that he doesn't have is need. And so the act of getting closer to God is fueled by need. So if you don't feel need for God, you're not going to get more religious. You're not going to get closer to God. And so part of the goal is to figure out all those places in life where you feel need. If you feel like I have no needs whatsoever, um, then you know becoming closer to God becomes an intellectual academic exercise as opposed to something that permeates your whole system. Okay. Your default is need of the divine. This is hard in our society. No, it's easy not to have in our society because of instant gratification. All the things that I can get immediately right now, even purchasing things immediately right now, make it easy for me to feel like I have no need. But there will be some visceral unhappiness that I'll have within myself that I may not even realize. I'll be unhappy, but I won't realize that I'm unhappy. So what are we saying? First point uh, relates to no God but God. Every, um, everyone takes something as a God. And number two, anything you take other than God cannot fulfill it. And then point number three, that the manifestation on how to fulfill that comes with the teachings of the prophet, peace be upon him, the one who's the perfect servant or appointed even to be the perfect servant. And then from there, what are we saying? That your innate design is one of need, is dependence. Use all these different words. Okay. Now, if my needs are not being fulfilled and I don't know even that my needs are not being fulfilled, I just feel like something's wrong. I may not even be able to articulate, yeah, I feel empty or I feel like I'm losing something. This is where you begin to see unhealthy behaviors. Okay. So for those who are joining a little bit later, the big unhealthy behaviors we're talking about, or the big behaviors would be, let's, let's reframe it, the big taboo topics one is suicide, right? Uh, one is sexual promiscuity, domestic abuse, eating disorders, and then we're going to also talk about gender and homosexuality and such. Okay, now I'm picking suicide first for a particular reason. Those of you from Loyola understand this because you've already been hearing this from me. That over the course of this school year, uh, students have been approaching me with every single type of issue. But the number one issue in the fall was anxiety, okay? The number one issue for the entirety of the last school year has been anxiety. And this goes all the way back, uh, I, I trace it all the way back to the, the shooting of those Syrian kids um, to a little over two years ago, right? That the number of students who are coming to visit me uh, complaining of anxiety has skyrocketed, okay? And that's normal, right? Uh, but then with the election, that anxiety started transforming into fear. Okay. So not just anxiety, but fear in the sense of, all right, what's going to happen to us? Okay, you guys are all looking at Bill Cawther doing he's not upset or anything like that. I'm sorry? Are you more comfortable back there? Are you okay? All right, okay, so. so. Oh, okay, okay, okay. You can go work on your final. You've already heard all these things from me. But in any case, I won't be offended. So, so what I'm saying here is that uh, with the election, that anxiety has transformed into very deep, visceral fear in the sense that what's going to happen to us? Okay? 
and that continued all the way into the inauguration. Okay. In the inauguration the whole week, students have been visiting me in tears. Okay. Like, this terror has increased. Okay. But what's interesting is that February, March, the number one issue that students have been visiting me with is faith problems. Okay. How do I know this is true? How do I know what to believe? Why should I believe this? Is Islam exclusively true? How do I know? All these questions. And I haven't been able to put my finger on why, except perhaps to say I've been watching our general community go through further and further breakdown to the point now their faith is being tested or questioned. That's February, March. April, end of March into April, the most common issue that students, students have been visiting me with is suicide ideation. Okay. And what I'm saying, most common, in a given day, I'll probably have, let's say, 10 to 15 people visit me. Today was a normal day. I probably have about 15 people visit me, of which maybe like eight are, are, are scheduled appointments. And then, uh, so imagine that over five days, and I'm saying 30 to 50% are, um, are people who are coming with suicide ideation. Okay. And to make this point even further, um, this is not just uh, an issue in terms of Muslims. I did a janazah I told some of you about uh, two Fridays ago, a funeral for someone who's not from Chicago, but is believed it was a suicide, a Muslim kid, right? Uh, at Loyola, we've also, in general, with the non-Muslim population, we've had a surge of people with suicide ideation or suicide attempts. Yeah. Something is going on. And I'm not able yet to put my finger on it, but one theory, we even, we've even had meetings about this, is this Netflix show, uh, 13 Reasons Why. You guys you know what I'm talking about? So it's a Netflix show, and 13 Reasons Why, it's basically, I haven't seen it, but correct me if I'm wrong, it's a bunch of like, uh, the, the premise of the show is someone is, has killed themselves. And so now we're watching all the videos leading up to the suicide. Okay. And what I hear is that it almost glorifies suicide. Right. Correct me. Yeah. Um, I've read Pilgrimage and the Altar. Oh. Yeah, Mashallah. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he, he was before, before it was cool. Now it's cool. Uh -huh. Sorry, not that. Okay. Um, and the, the difference between the book and the movie, okay, the show, the book has some problems, but the show, what the problematic is, they show the suicide in the show. The book does not even go near that. Yeah, yeah, I hear like it's a really graphic it's, suicide. They show you beginning to end. Non-stop, not censored. It's on YouTube. Number one scene from the show. Uh -huh. It's already a million views. Uh -huh. So there's that. The second thing is the difference between the book and the show is that the book is kind of like you just read the thought. Like, it's like it's him listening to the tapes and then just thinking back and forth. And the show they kind of like show things that aren't like they, they basically it's graphic in the way the book is. It's just because the book, it's like all you know is like her point of view, not all these other characters and all these other trauma. Okay, that's the book or the show. Oh, that's the show. That's the thing. The show's more graphic because you see more. Okay, so you see more other points of view. Okay, and I hear there's more seasons coming. Like, I mean, at the risk of sounding really, really nasty, it's coming like a suicide per season or something like that, right? But I've heard, again, not having seen the show, that even they, they yes? Well, Where's this voice come from? Yeah, Liba. Um, I was actually talking to a friend about this yesterday because we were at a gathering and she was just talking about the show and how she's found some like problematic things with it. So I brought up what you had like yeah. told us, basically what you just told us today. And one thing that she had, like she like posed the question, she said that is it that 
seeing this and like seeing suicide being glorified, is that what's causing this like surge in suicidal um, ideations, or is it the fact that like people feel like they can come forward and express those things? Yeah, uh, I'm skeptical that this is convincing people mm -hmm. to to have suicide ideation. I think it's opening a door for people to talk about it, but also for some people to go through, mm -hmm. right? Um, but I'm still not able to put my finger on it completely. I mean, even in talking to our wellness center, this has been a huge, huge surge. And the surge does seem to at least chronologically correspond with the release of the show. Maybe related, may not be related, right? But it seems like it probably is, or at least correlation, if not causation. But <clears throat> so now let's take a step back and talk about depression, okay? Um, depression is something very real. In our community, we don't give mental health uh, anywhere close to the, sh the amount of attention that we have to give to it. Mental health is a very real thing. Um, but you would say that in our paradigm of the human being, there's more dimensions. So I'm speaking about soul and body. Okay? Um, in our society, we usually speak of mind and body. Okay? But in our Islamic paradigm, it's mind, heart, and body. Okay? And each of these regions has its own, you can say, emotional map. So you have this yearning of the mind, which is curiosity, an innate yearning for knowledge. Okay. You have a yearning of the body, which is physical connection, which can happen by way of food, right? It can happen by way of hugging. And then, of course, and we'll talk about it, we'll talk about you know, sexual interaction. Okay. But it's essentially intimate connection. That's an innate need and desire yearning of the body. And then there's the yearning of the heart, which is a yearning for intimacy. And by intimacy, think about it in all of its realms, but when you get more knowledge of the world, you're developing a type of intimacy with the world. When you're getting more knowledge of a person, you're getting a type of intimacy. So it's an intimacy connection. And usually this is the realm where we speak about love, okay? But each of these regions can experience depression. You can have depression of the body, you can have depression of the mind, you can have depression of the heart. Depression of the body would be an actual physiological condition. It's an actual real condition for a treatment for which in the past would have been things related to physical activities and diet, okay, which is still some of the treatment today, but would also include medications, right? And, and there's a whole big controversy about psych psychiatry in our society. You know, is the psychiatrist a psychopharmacist or a psychotherapist? Meaning, is the psychiatrist someone who just gives you pills or is the psychiatrist someone who works as a therapist? And we can explore that if you want. But the key point I'm making is that uh, if you have a physician who is prescribing for you medication, just like it would be for cholesterol, if it's for mental health, my default is you listen to your physician, okay? because it is a real thing. Better is that you go through therapy, okay, along with the medication. But I'm saying it's a real thing. That's the key thing I want you to take. Physiological depression is a real thing whose treatment is physiological, okay? If you can become more physically active, that will help. Okay? If, you can become, if you can improve your diet, that will help. If you can improve your sleeping, that will help. But you may find that that's not enough. Depends on how serious the depression is. Depression of the mind is something more related to what we'd speak about when we speak about therapy. Good. That here, your need for, for interaction, your need for mental health 
is something that has to be addressed. Okay? And that is also a real depression. What we don't have as much in our society um, is depression of the heart. That's where you get into spirituality. Right? Now, I'm making this point, I keep emphasizing the depression is real because in our community, we still take mental health away about up to about two or three centuries ago. In many of our regions, we used to take physical health. And what do we do, especially in villages? Oh, you're sick, and someone else would call it the flu, but in the village, they'll say, oh, the devil's on it, right? So you gotta pray away your sickness. And what happens? Person dies, right? Because it's ridiculous as an answer, okay? And that's also the case of mental health. A lot of times, if someone is going through depression, the treatment that they'll get prescribed is, okay, you just gotta pray more. This is all in your head. Yeah, it is in your head, but it's, it's, it's a real thing in your head. That prayer will not necessarily fix, okay? It can help, inshallah. Yes? Yeah, I feel like that with our community leads to, like, addiction problems yes. and stuff. Because if you go to your parents and they're like, oh, no, you know, you're fine, just pray, uh -huh. or you'll feel better. Yep. And they start leaning towards drugs and stuff like exactly. that. Exactly. Because it's not being, it's not being, the need is not being addressed. Yeah? Is the, sometimes I feel like when people misunderstand the need, uh, a constant fear of just, not stacking up to the things that you're supposed to be mm -hmm. doing could lead to that type of depression and thus even like, I just don't want to deal with it anymore. Mm -hmm. Either they, you know, completely leave Islam or, I mean, mm -hmm. they, like I had a kid one time who was sitting here and, mashallah, he memorized a lot of Quran in his life and he did a couple of things, a lot of very small. You're saying like bad deeds. Yeah, bad yeah. Deeds, but he was crying. I mean, he couldn't take it. Mm -hmm. and he was just like, I don't know if I'm going crazy. And yeah. I mean, he was sitting, I mean, literally rocking back and forth. And I, I mean, it was just, it's all good. Yeah. It's, it's all right. You know, and um, so I think sometimes our lack of mm -hmm. understanding of, of, or, or having too much fear and not enough hope mm -hmm. uh, causes possibly yeah. that. So, so your point is basically that maybe someone, the way they're taught religion, you know, the standards are too high and they do some small misstep, they feel like, okay, they're doomed, they're going to hell. This goes back to the point that the religion is designed to teach you to navigate life. But if it's not helping you navigate life, then the way you're being taught religion is wrong, right? And speaking as someone who used to run a Sunday school, uh, I've gone through, up to a couple years ago, pretty much all the books that are available for, for you know, Islamic curricula in, in our society, and almost all of them I can't stand because they're not telling you how to navigate life. They're telling you, okay, memorize all these irrelevant facts. Like, okay, anybody, can anybody tell me what year of the Hijra was fasting prescribed? Okay, I don't even know, right? Okay, what will knowing it give you? That's the point that I'm making. Yeah, I could help on Muslim Jeopardy, right? Yeah, I could win Muslim Jeopardy. Yeah, yeah. So if it's an al-Baqarah, al-Baqarah is revealed within the first 18 months, so probably about two years after Hijra. You know, that's the answer I would extrapolate from, from knowing the history of the Quran. But I'm saying what a, that doesn't help me with anything. Yes, sir? Well, one of the things I've noticed is, you know, being in the educational system yes, sir. is this othering. So, you know, it's like um, uh, I've had students that they, they, they were, like you said, seriously depressed, they were suicidal, mm. and it was, oh, well, we don't talk to these people. Yeah, right, right. That's so, this is all part of the mess. This, this sort of like, why are you talking to this teacher? Uh -huh. don't, don't talk to him, don't talk to this uh -huh. teacher. And yeah. then you end up losing the kid. The kid ends up killing himself mm. or running away or uh -huh. what have you. So that's, 
that's what I see this sort of othering mm -hmm. of, you know, these people are tappers, you know. Yeah, non believers, people. yeah. Yeah, what would they know? Yeah. Yeah, Adel. Um, I was just going to say, like, I think, men, like, the whole mental health issue is probably, like, from what I can tell, being, like, a part of, like, the public education system. Yeah. Um, where, like, most of the people aren't even Muslim, um, that the issue on mental health is probably one of the most, like, severe things that I've seen personally. I agree. Just because um, even if, like, you aren't, like, Muslim or if you're, like, a non-believer, then I guess it might be easier for them just because they're sort of in a different mentality. Possibly, like, but probably Muslim, not. Yeah. Like a Muslim mm -hmm. student would be where it's seen as, like, it's an issue with yourself, like what you mentioned, yeah. that you need to pray more or you need to visit an imam and he'll tell you to pray more or mm -hmm. tell you to read the Quran when something is... Like, there's a bigger issue at hand, which is, like, in your brain or mm -hmm. some type of other object. Mm -hmm. But I think it's something that's often probably very severely overlooked. Yeah, I mean, the, the way I'd frame your point is that there are a lot of communities that have begun to regard mental health as a real thing. Yeah. But, but would you say that in the black American communities, is mental health taken as, as a real thing? What do you think? I think... Yeah, I've made, I made, I've made, I've made you two. I've done the absolute worst tokenizing. I've made you two the official representatives of all thing black. So, yeah, yeah, nobody else. Yeah, exactly. We can speak from experience. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Anecdotally, what do you think? I don't know, brother Jamil. I think, I think, um, in the past, I, I think I'm, yeah, I'm a lot older. So, mashallah, mashallah. You can speak to now, but I can. I've seen an evolution. I mean, I think there was a, a group um, that for a long time, you know, a deep sense of spirituality is what mm -hmm. got you through. Yeah. But then it got to a point to where, um, you know, once people, and please jump in, Brother Jamil, if you, if you know, no. but then it got to a point to where, look, this isn't enough. Yeah. And so then you had people who came out of the academy who were like, okay, look, we have to start looking at uh, the psychological effects of, mm -hmm. you know, slavery, Jim Crow, mm -hmm. you know, there's a lot of uh, post-traumatic stress that's going mm -hmm. on here. And so I think that I would argue that the first, I, I know people say W.E.B. Du Bois was probably one of the first, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, Afri to deal with the African-American psyche mm -hmm. in his book, Souls of Black Folk. Mm -hmm. But I would argue Carter G. Woodson, mm -hmm. in this education of the Negro, mm -hmm. I think that he was more so... Um, he was, and then Dr. Alvin Bassan took it to a whole other level. That's recent, so, yeah. So I would say that um, that uh, in the African American community, um, I mean, I would say this: I wouldn't tell my child to go to a shape. Mm -hmm. I would tell my child to go to a doctor. Mm -hmm. So, um, so just, and I hope I'm being clear. Yeah. I think that in the African American community, we've evolved to a point to where. I think in some circles it has. Right. I mean, there's still there's still a pocket where it's you know ain't nothing wrong with you. Yeah. You know, or, or if you go to a psychiatrist, Chris, you're crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's that stigma, mm -hmm. but it's not as much of a stigma as it used to be. Mm -hmm. I think that yeah. now there's much more pushback. And and to be honest, I, I say this in all seriously. I think we have Oprah to thank for that. Mm. that Interesting point. Never thought about it that way. No, I think that's absolutely true. Fascinating. You know. She brought that conversation to uh -huh. the community. That, you know, Never thought about it that way. Sometimes prayer doesn't work. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, yeah, you, you prayed on, you laid hands on me and yeah. put oil on me, but I walked out of the church. Yeah, still, yeah, still, yeah. Mm -hmm. so, um, 
Interesting connection there. Yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah. I yeah, give her, um, I mean, I yeah. give her a lot of credit mm -hmm. for, for bringing these issues mm -hmm. to the fore. In yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah. And so, so the point being that uh, in the Muslim community, like, like uh, what's, what's being mentioned is that, all right, just go talk to the Islamic scholar. And there's multiple problems there. One is this misunderstanding that the Islamic scholar has the answers for everything. The Islamic scholar is trained usually in Islamic law. Okay, this is not a matter of Islamic law. Okay. Some Islamic scholars are trained in not just even Islamic law, but the conclusions, the answers of Islamic law, as opposed to the process of deriving these answers. So by definition, they're not going to have what you need. And if they take on the role of being your therapist, they're doing something grossly irresponsible. And then you had a point, and then Donna, yeah, yes, what's not? Oh, um, that I, I feel like how you're saying the Islamic scholars have their own way, so to speak. And like I have an Islamic teacher, and nobody has ever brought up the point of depression or anxiety to her, but over and over again, whenever any topic comes up, she'll make it known that these are all in your head. Ugh. These are all things that you can pray and get yeah. rid of. And I've known her for many, many years, um, and I respect her. But at the same time, it's almost like, you know how they say the Bible belt? Well, she's on, like, on, on the Quran belt. Yeah, yeah, totally. But then it's, like, it's also like not the most accurate, rep accurate representation. Like, you know, it's one of those things where I feel like, and we talk about it a lot in the office, the three of us, um, uh. and, and our staff is like why the youth are going away from Islam and the mosques and all, that, uh, all those things. And it's really because the guidance and the leadership are like, there's nothing wrong with you. Just, mm -hmm. just go pray. Yeah. Go do this. Go do. Yeah, you'll be fine. And you'll yeah. be fine. You know, you know why it's called like Bible Belt, Quran Belt, right? Yeah. No, it's not because you're probably saying because that's where that location. It's because that's how you fix a problem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Donna, you're you're raising your hand. Um, um, I was just gonna say because as someone who wants to be a psychiatrist, you don't know how many people have told me you're you're gonna become crazy if you want to become a psychiatrist. But, like, but if you're no, then you respond by saying, "Well, you're the one who's making me crazy. That's why I have to be a psychiatrist." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And someone who's grown up here, so, I mean, the bottom line is that uh, another way to frame it is that, okay, if removing a gin from someone would solve the problems, then that's what we should do, right? So the real question is, does this method have efficacy? Is it effective? So if all you had to do was make your prayers, if that's all the problems, then that's what we tell people to do. But we're saying it doesn't work, right? And so, but we're saying that, yeah, this method, you, it's 100% true that this is a Western concept, a Western construction, but if it's working to give someone healing, then do it. And how old are these people who are saying real life is not like this? I mean, they're just people I know I'm really close to, like... Like they're 20? No, like old people, like family. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, so they're my age. Yeah, yeah. yeah. old people. Also, yeah, people who should know better but don't in terms of, like, they just see it all as the same, like, all, all as American stuff. Like, like they, they throw put mental health in that little mm -hmm. box of yeah. fun of things to ignore. At the cost of their children. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes, sir. And then here. I just think there's a... What are you wearing? It smells so good, Marshall. Could be me. Yeah? Okay. All right. All right. Maybe it's just... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
I think there's a, a certain arrogance that comes with uh, mm-hmm. the fact that we're Muslims. That we have this idea because Allah is our Lord and, yeah. and our True. religion is what it is that us, you know, that that's all we need. Mm-hmm. You know, and not saying that it's not all we need, but I think that that's how we approach it. So when, mm-hmm. when someone dismisses your mental breakdown that you're going through or whatever, as as let's go pray, you'll be fine. Uh-huh. It's from the arrogance, I mm-hmm. think. You know? yeah. And you're illustrating my point about the need for the prophet, peace be upon it. If all we needed was just to say one God and pray to God, then we wouldn't need the prophet, peace be upon him. Here up. Everything in life. Right? So maybe they thought, okay, so Islam can be your answer because the prophet, yeah. you know, answered topics to all kinds of topics mm-hmm. in life. So maybe Islam can be your answer because there are topics he probably went mm-hmm. through. Uh, this is absolutely correct. One of the more controversial aspects of the early biography of the prophet, peace be upon him, and I'm saying controversial in terms of some uh, schools of Islamic law or Islamic thought, they totally take it as authentic and others don't want to. That uh, Anybody know what is the Fatrat al-Wahi? What is this period? This is a period of time where the Prophet, peace be upon him, did not receive any revelations for, for up to six months. And then what? He wanted to throw himself over uh, the rocks because uh, he was tired. Yeah, he thought, he thought, you know, thought what's wrong? And he was literally getting ready to throw himself. Uh, I don't know if he, I don't know if, if it went that far, but this was in his in his thoughts. Yeah, you were never taught this in Sunday school, were you? Yeah, this is authentic in Bukhari. This is the real thing. Yeah, this is real. Even the Prophet peace be upon him, when he first received revelations, he thought he lost his mind. You're raising your hand. Yes, sir. No, yeah, I, I was just saying it, it's interesting too because that's when uh, the orphan was revealed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is this is Surah Abdu'ha. Yeah. yeah. You know, with So, so he receives a couple of revelations at the beginning, and then this long period of time, and he thinks, okay, has God abandoned me? Right. This is the prophet who's saying this. You know, have I upset God? And Surah Abdu'ha, you can all look at it. Surah 93. He's being told. Your Lord has not forsaken you. He has not abandoned you. What you have in the future is better than what you have now. Right? Yes? But I guess on the other side of it, uh, a different perspective would be that like psychology or psychiatry or psychotherapy, whatever you want to call it, um, you know, it is a Western construction. Yeah, I'm saying wholeheartedly it's, it's a Western construction. It is. But if it works, that's but my point. Does it, I mean, hasn't it historically been extremely barbaric, and then every 20 years they realized that what they were doing was making it worse? Um, I don't think it's like that. I think the case with with that is just like the case with medicine, that, you know, studies come along that show (coughs) things that are better that might mean, okay, this is what we thought worked, and we throw it out. We have something better. But look at it from this perspective. Either I do this, or I do nothing, right? And so my suggestion is you do this. And I'm agreeing wholeheartedly it's a Western construction. But if it works, if it helps provide healing, if it provides healing, then who cares if it's a Western construction? That's what I'm saying. Because you can also say the same thing for, for Western medicine. We can say, oh, it comes back from Muslims back to Spain. Modern Western medicine is a Western construction, too. And if I have some illness, I'm not going to go to a sheikh for the same reason. Unless it's like some super Sufi master, then he'll be like, Bing. Yeah. Don't, yeah. Don't, yeah. don't mental illnesses also have deep 
spiritual implications? Well, I'm saying that would be the heart aspect, but what about the mind? Yes? Yeah, I'm sorry. Um, but, you, you know, it's fascinating. If, I, I don't know if it's still up on YouTube or not. Yeah. But uh, to your point about mental illness. Yes, sir. Hiram uh, Ali was speaking yeah. in uh, Europe, and then the questioner said to her, you know, hey, you know, uh, whatever pain you suffered, whoever hurt you, I'm, I'm very sorry, and, um, you know, I just want to say that. And then she, like, hired her, Shelly started tearing up. Uh-huh. And the, the what I got from that is that if, if we don't get out in front of this, because yeah. you can say, you know, okay, well, it doesn't work because it's in the West, but then what's your alternative? That's exactly the point, yeah. And, you know, and if you don't have an alternative and this is working, I mean, then, you know, this is what we've got to go with. Because I can tell you from my personal experience, I mean, seeing it being in the school system, I mean, I, I have never... I tell everybody what you do. I'm a school Okay. High school teacher, but yeah, go ahead. But yeah. uh, anyway, uh, children. Yeah, yeah, mashallah. Yeah, there's a couple of your children here. Uh, yeah. yeah. That was great. That was a real blessing to see. It's awesome. Yeah. She was on my radio show that you never listened to. Yeah. But anyway, um, but, you know, I, I see it in the high school. I mean, I see these kids. They have this, it is, it's like a schizophrenic, mm-hmm. you know, mentality. And they come to school, and you guys can attest to this. They come to school. I knew this one kid. She would come to school in the club. She'd go to the bathroom, she'd come out, and she'd have a mini skirt on and everything. I mean, it's full transformation. Mm-hmm. And then um, and then at the end of the day, she would go back into the school, mm-hmm. I mean, back to the bathroom, rather, and change back and then go. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're seeing this this schizophrenia that's going on. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's don't talk to the high school, uh, the guidance counselor. Mm-hmm. I mean, I knew kids that came to me and said, you know, Mr. Williams, I'm pregnant. Mm-hmm. I don't know what to do. I don't know who to tell. And I'm like, well, we got to go to the... Because, yeah. I mean, by law now, I have to take you into the mandated guidance reporter. counselor. I have to, I'm a mandated reporter. Yeah. And, you know, oh, don't do that. You know, my parents are going to kill me. Um, and then kids just disappearing, uh, yeah. you know, being married off to men that are, like, my age. And they're in, like, uh, mm. you know, they're, they're 18, 17, 16, yeah. Whatever. I mean, this stuff is real. And then, like I said, I mean, you look at, like, you know, this, this saying of hurt people hurt people. Yeah, this is a very important line. I mean, you know, I mean, we can go down the list. I mean, I remember when it was just Irshad Manji. Yeah. Now it's Hiron Ali. Yeah. Now it's this side of Hiron. I don't even know where she came from. I mean, oh, they're just man. coming out of the woodwork. Yeah. And, and, if you sit, and if you sit and really listen to them, they're people who were hurt. Mm-hmm. And it's got nothing I bet to do every with single one of them is someone who is hurt. Yeah. And in fact, uh, you guys know Geertz Wilder, that guy in Europe? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. What is he ethnically? Indonesian. No way. Yeah, he's part Indonesian. Le Pen, who's running for whatever prime minister of France, what is she? She's part Egyptian. Oh, snap. Yes. You can go Google it right now. Yeah. Or, and or mind. Yeah. Yeah, right, right. So the Western construction aspect, the key issue is that our, our view of the human being is wider. But uh, the point, yeah, uh, so heart in our society is basically your feelings and emotions. And, and, but I'm saying we also take it as a real thing, right? Uh, but the fact that uh, therapy, psychiatry do address the, the mind and the body, uh, that's, that's the direction you take, yeah. Yes, sir? Uh, some people go and they get help and they feel better, but 
they also then, in return, feel negative towards their religion. Yeah. So how do you rectify that? How do you have them seek help outside of their religion, perhaps? Yeah. But then understand that their religion still matters, still has value to them. So then you send them to me, inshallah. Okay. And I'm not saying that out of okay. boasting. No, I'm saying I don't know too many people to refer them to. That's the, that's the issue, right? Um, that a lot of times what a person needs a lot of times is they just need to hear someone of religion be compassionate with them, right? Um, but sometimes they need bigger answers than that. And, and so uh, when people are leaving religion, what are they effectively saying? It's not giving me what I need. Right. 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 Yeah. And so, okay, so, so we're talking about, about suicide being a very, very real thing. And then I have to re, uh, uh, and I have to reemphasize the point. If you find yourself going through any sort of suicide ideation, please talk to someone. Uh, at the very least, you, you talk to me, and those of you who don't have my contact info, just go to Loyola's website or just type Muslim Chaplain Loyola, then you'll find my contact info, right? Yes? Yeah. So uh, it's been the case here at campus where friends will drag their friends to come talk to me, right? And I mean, as, as a principal, you should just be compassionate with everyone anyway, right? And then as you I develop... That so that, that's just, you know, how you develop friendship. And so you spend time with them, all those things, right? That's... Oh, I agree. Uh, I'm sure that there's quite a few who aren't coming to me, and that troubles me quite a bit, right? And that's why then I use other techniques, like whether it's Jummah khutbahs or letters, talking about all these things, right? Any way I can get the point across, you know, I try. And then that includes talking to people. When we had these meetings, then I started sending texts to all my friends who are parents or other counselors and such throughout the country saying, here's what's going on, right? Heads up. And then I talked to some people, like at Khalil Center, they already heard about this. They already knew that this was going on. And, and so, um, yeah, I mean, it's still probably fair to say the majority of people, more than 50% of people, are not getting the help that, uh, that they need. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, who else other than you? Because, you know, one of the things I've noticed in our community is you have, like, this, you brought up celebrity. So some people, you know, it's like you used to see them Back, yeah, when they were nobody, yeah. and now it's impossible to get hold now of them. It's impossible to like, yeah. you know, get in touch with them. You well, have to go through an agent. I'm always, uh, I'm always triaging. So for me, it's I'm always evaluating. No, no, I'm not yeah, about you. no, but I'm telling you like that. You, but I'm just yeah. saying, you know, I'm not talking about you because I mean, you, you're like they dropped you off in a hot zone. So you, you know <laughs> yeah. you're like, and you're doing this. Yeah, exactly. You know? so yeah, look where my hand is. Yeah. You know, so I mean, yeah. your hands are full. And that's why I'm saying, who else? Because, I mean, it's like, I mean, you were like the people's shape. And now, you know, you they, they parachuted you into, I mean, you're a caisson, so you can't be. Translate for everybody, what is a caisson? Oh, that was like one of the big battles in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. So, um, but I mean, but, um, you're constantly getting, mm -hmm. I mean, you're in the emergency room, they're lying. So, I mean, yeah, you should see my you schedule know, today. Yeah. Be you. So, what I'm saying is. Yeah, so I would also refer people to. <coughs> I mean, I, um, I'll think of some more names, but I definitely refer people to Abdul Malik, Abdul Malik Ryan at DePaul. Uh, so again, uh, he's like, 
Yeah, he's, he's also, he has even more Muslims in his place. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you're a Paysan and he's a way. So, I mean, yeah. I mean, you know what I'm saying? It's like... Yeah, I wish like, I had a whole bunch... Be, there needs to be organizations. You know, there needs to be. It can't just be one person. You know. uh, okay, so that will come to, but I'll give you a short answer to that. That's all your responsibility. Mm-hmm. Yes? Do you think there needs to be, like, special training also for, like, Islamic schools and, like, how... Yes the faculty deals with the kids. Yes. Because I know when I was younger, I went to IFS, and my brother... And Quran his, belt. <laughs> my brother and his friend walked into, like, the mosque area, not even the mosque, just the lobby, yeah. and they kicked them out because they were wearing shorts. Oh, okay. And I remember, like, my friend's brother, to this day, he's, like, 23, and he still talks about how he was kicked out of a mosque, and he left Islam, too. Oh! Not because of that, but just in general. Well, I mean, I that would IFS contribute. help that, yeah, to be honest, that but, like, yeah. I feel like they don't deal with yeah, I mean, I mean, we're we're getting into some like even bigger questions, um, which I'm gonna I'm gonna answer a little bit, but I'm gonna put on hold just because so we can think the other things. That what all of us I think will agree upon is that there's a tremendous need for for investment into more institutions, institutional support, right? A conversation we we're having just before we began is the vast majority of our dollars go into building nice mosques and to you know solving, uh, uh, you know helping people overseas. And those are all what's important, but it's like those get the vast majority of the funds, and then it just goes down tremendously for everything else. And so that's all on all of you then, right? Uh, meaning if you find yourself five years from now making the same complaint, then the problem's on you. See what I'm saying? <laughs> no one taught me what to do. No, okay, we'll talk about some of this. Yeah. Okay. So, but it's not just suicide. It's also self-harm. Right? This includes cutting. This includes burning. Right? Uh, multiple different ways. Or even look at what is your sense of self. Okay? And so another point to add in this theology that we're speaking about, it's not going to cure this. Okay? But it's something to also consider about yourself. That the most precious, the most dignified, the most valuable of all creation is the human being. That by virtue of the fact that Allah Ta'ala made you a human being means that he has invested in you a level of dignity and value that exceeds all the rest of the universe. Okay? Which is nice as a conceptual point, but what I'm saying is to try to get the appreciation for the fact that harming yourself is beneath your value. Hurting yourself is beneath your value, your innate value. But how do you illustrate your value? By illustrating the value of the person next to you. So yeah, I can say intellectually I get it. But when do I feel it? When other people are, are showing me value. So how do you do it? You give value to the people around you, which it translates as, respect in the way you interact with them, value what is going on in their lives. So one of the big problems that we have in our society is not just you know, this problem of religion, it's just alienation, right? That, that many of us would much rather talk to someone by way of text than face-to-face. Okay? But it's a simple thing, and I'll make all of you guys do it before we leave. Think of the pleasure it feels when you receive a hug. And we'll make it all halal, don't worry. But the point is that, the point, like, you know, there is a pleasure that we take for granted that you feel from shaking someone's hand, right? There's a pleasure you get when someone says your name. There's a pleasure you get when you receive a hug. 
And so the point is that we've also lowered our value. And if you think you're worthless, then a lot of these things become much easier. And I'm not saying this is going to cure these things, because these could be physiological. Okay? But the point is that if you find you know, it not too hard to harm yourself physically or to harm yourself in terms of your self-esteem, it means you're not appreciating how, how valuable you are just by being in existence. Right? But how, to, again, do you do that? You show it to other people. You illustrate your value by showing your, uh, the, the valuing other people, and then that's also how you, uh, how you give another person their sense of their value. Right? And that includes even just you know, how you interact with people. But you make sure to do it. So this other key point is that you have Allah, you have the Prophet, peace be upon him, and then you have the Ummah, right? Because what's the term we give for the companions of the Prophet? We call them the companions. We don't call them disciples. We call them companions. His friends, okay? His companions. And that's the approach you take with each other. That this room is a room full of companions, okay? And that's what it, brotherhood and sisterhood actually means, right? And you act like friends, and ask yourself, how many friends do you have for whom, if they were in need, you drop what you do, you're doing and go help them? Right? If, it's, you know, if that's serious, like, you know, I need your help right now. Or they may not even want say they need your help, but you know they need your help. Ask yourself, you know, make a list of how many people there are okay, that you would do that for. Like, I'm saying by name in your head to that. That's telling you how many friends you have. But the bigger question, which might be harder, is how many people do you know will do that for you? Okay. The more people you do it for, then by definition, the more people do it for you. Okay. I mean, you may not always get it when you actually need it, because sometimes people are unable to or don't know how. But this, the first question to ask yourself is how many people would you honestly do it for? Okay. Meaning you have all this work you have to do, but this person's in trouble. right? Or you have you know, 20 other people you have to talk to, but then you have to bump this person to the top, right? And so the first question is, how many people would you do it for, right? And <clears throat> that's the definition of a friendship. Do you show up for your friend? Okay. Not how many friends you have on Facebook. How many, who here has more than 1,000 friends on Facebook? Raise your hand. How many? Got you beat. How many friends do you have? Okay, you guys all know exactly how many friends you are. No, anyway, okay, yeah. How many of those people are actually my friends? I don't know. But the point is, um, that's also central to our deen. It's not just Allah. It's not just the Prophet, peace be upon him. It's Allah, the Prophet, and the Ummah. Okay? So what am I saying? That a lot of these things, we put them into practice, can preempt some of these things, but it's a reality. I have students who come to my office who either they themselves tell me that they're cutting, they're cutting their arms, they're cutting their legs, okay? or someone else will come and tell me that they are. Okay. This is a real thing. And again, this is illustrating from a conceptual sense that you don't have an appreciation for your value, but it doesn't mean you're doing something wrong in that sense. It means no one's giving it to you. If you don't get a sense of validation from your parents, from your father, you will probably find yourself doing a lot of things that are unhealthy. If it's not a physical harm, self-harm, then often it's a mental self-harm. A very low sense of self-esteem. Not humility, a low sense of self-esteem to the point that it becomes self-hate. But what else happens? We also, in our dean, have the devil. And what is the story of the devil? 
He is someone who was driven by this jealousy. He refuses to do the prostration, and then he compensates for it with arrogance. And so what happens? Self-hate is actually a type of narcissism because you're talking about, you're focusing on how much you are horrible. So usually when we think of narcissism, we think of self-love. You, you focus on yourself above everything else. Self-hate is also narcissism. And so this is what someone does to compensate for that feeling of emptiness. Okay. And what some people do, like these big super Islamophobes that you're mentioning, some people go in that direction. Like, I think it's no coincidence that Geertz Wilder is part Indonesian, that Marie Le Pen is part Egyptian, and then Ayan Hirsi Ali went through what she went through. I bet in every one of their stories, you can probably see you know, some, some you know, abuse of some form they, they received probably from their parents, probably from their father, but somebody in that category. And that's led them to compensate with self-hate that then becomes megalomania, right? And then they just go on the attack, right? So <clears throat> another thing related to all this, uh, another direction that we take in terms of our behaviors is sexual promiscuity, okay? And I'm going to tell you point blank, the people who suffer the most in sexual promiscuity are the women, okay? Totally. Because who's the one who gets pregnant, right? And also in terms of social conditioning in our culture, whether we talk about Muslim culture or general American culture, I mean, uh, whether you like it or not, you know, the men are being programmed to be all quote unquote masculine, strong and such, and the women are being programmed to be all, you know, submissive and all that. Unlawful fornication or just you know, uh, things outside of halal in, uh, male-female interaction. And the women are causing it? No, 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 no. I'm saying the women are the primary victims. Oh, victims. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Not the cause. The cause of blame is, goes on whoever's involved, right? And that is actually something true, that we often put the blame on women as, you know, as the women are temptresses or something, yeah. right? Now, that's not at all what I'm saying. I'm saying the women are the primary victims, right? Um, but, and I'm saying this very, very uh, seriously. Now, this doesn't mean that a woman does not have agency, that she's not making a choice, right? Both are making a choice in the whole process, okay? Uh, but what I found over and over again is that the common scenario, not always, but very common, is, is that you'll have uh, a woman who is being basically um, controlled by an aggressive man. And aggressive, I'm not using stereotypical masculine, I'm using abusive, right? And I'll give you a case. Uh, I just had uh, a student, not from Loyola, visit me a couple days ago, who is going through uh, a second divorce. Um, her husband cheated on her, okay? And when I talked to her, I could tell within five minutes, she's the kind of person that guys probably just keep walking all over. Right? She has this very friendly, polite personality, um, which is probably itself coming from repeated abuse. Right? What happens when you receive, when you're abused? Eventually, you're going to start internalizing the abuse. Like we have a line that, all right, if you kick a dog enough, the dog's eventually going to think it did something wrong, okay? which justifies the abuse. And that's how a human being behaves. If you abuse a child enough, whether it's verbal abuse, physical abuse, Eventually, soon, the child's going to internalize that there's something wrong with me, okay? And that's uh, a boy, a girl, a woman, a man, 
right? And that's why you always hear about women who are, who are victims of domestic abuse will often stay with the man. And, and I've had multiple cases of women who either have an abusive husband or abusive boyfriend, and I'll ask them, if you saw someone else in this exact situation, what would you tell them? She said, I'd tell them to get out right away. <coughs> but she's not able to get out herself, right? Because what starts happening is that you internalize the abuse, that there's something wrong with me, and at the very least, I'm not going to be able to find another man, right? And so what I'm saying is that often the victim is, is the female. But that doesn't mean the female doesn't have agency, right? Because a lot of times in the case of sexual promiscuity, it's both. It's absolutely both, and it's entirely willful. Okay. And think about what else this is doing. This is breaking down the family relationship, right? What's, what do I need to get married for then if I can already get everything, right? And that is also a case of, of a specific um, uh, case that I have here where the, uh, the girl's coming to me, you know, asking what to do, and she's given the boy everything, okay? And she's hoping the boy will say, you know, let's get married or something like that. But I'm saying, why would he? He has everything he wants, right? It's in his best interest not to get married, right? And same case, I asked her, what would you tell someone else in the same situation? She said, I told her to get out, but she's not able to, right? Because we still all have that innate yearning, and part of that yearning is the desire to be loved. Yes, sir? you say about, I work at a youth center and I hear a lot of crazy stories uh, of youth just, you know, there's a party and, you know, whatever, like one week they might be with somebody, next week they might be with somebody, these are Muslims, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. and just, you know, doing whatever it is and, and not really having a conscience about it, just, it just feels good, it's, it's something that they enjoy. Yeah. In discussion. So, I mean, so uh, I think uh, pornography has ma gotten mainstreamed in our society. So everybody has access to pornography. And I'd say pornography is more dangerous than smoking crack because at least to smoke crack, you got to go out and get it from someplace. Pornography, you just need an internet connection, right? And I think pornography really affects your neural pathways because you're not going to get satisfied by just looking at one photo, one video. You're going to need to see another one, and then another one, and another one, and another one. And that starts becoming your standard on how you look at things. This is total objectification, not just of the woman that's definitely happening, but the whole experience. And so then it becomes nothing more than, yeah, it's hookup culture, right? And I'm suggesting even then, usually the primary victim is, is the woman, right? Uh, because in most of our subcultures, a man can be promiscuous, and still be respected, a woman who's promiscuous is looked at in very, very horrible ways, right? And I, that I'm putting the blame on the culture, right? Um, and that's part of the reality, yeah. Now, one thing that, you know, I find that's a serious thing that we have to, as yeah. a community, have to deal with is the response that we get from leadership or that we get from parents mm -hmm. uh, when these types of situations happen or we hear about them or they're spreading around in the community, yeah. I feel like, uh, you know, especially from, from leadership, that it's, it's, it's dealt with totally wrong. Yeah, and I mean, uh, I, I would still frame that in like just all the things we need like institutionally. And one reason why it's not addressed properly in leadership is because the common Muslim leader all across Chicago, all across the country is a professional in something else. 
with a full-time life in something else, and then they have a little bit of time to dedicate to the community, right? And so the community will have 50,000 issues, and they're gonna address what is absolutely most pressing, kind of hoping that the other stuff goes away, right? right? And thus, yeah. And I also think that the lack of facilitation of the halal mm -hmm. is a huge issue. Like, uh, I Absolutely. know there's a lot of cultural uh, baggage uh, that, you know, for instance, I'll give you a great example. There was a sister who uh, wanted to marry, she's Palestinian, she wanted to marry a brother from uh, Pakistan, and, mm. mm -hmm. it, and her father almost killed her. A Palestinian said not to marry a non-Palestinian. Oh, can you guys believe that? No, no, no. <laughs> no, you can't believe that, can you? Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, I mean, in that sense, you know. And yeah, some of it's just absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. You know, sometimes you might have like a Pakistani, you know, who wants to marry an Indian, and he might be a good convert from Hinduism and everything, and then, you know, and, you know, she just has to convert him to become super Pakistani, yeah. you know, get him to wear dopey and everything, and then maybe, maybe. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. yeah, you guys do it back there. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's why I think you should add racism to your list. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I have a whole bunch of things. These are like the, the big official ones that have been handed down yeah. from on high. But, but if we had time, we'd talk about all these. I mean, racism would be its own discussion, its own full discussion. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, we'll leave. I mean, going off that, uh, it's the five topics were just topics that me and Jamil thought, yeah. you know, from our experiences, like, okay, what would be, mm -hmm. what, would, if, what would your top five list be based on what Ask me that at, uh, at the end, inshallah. Yeah, and I'll think about it while, while we're going through. But think about what else also takes place in terms of, of sexual promiscuity. You're also devaluating yourself. You're devaluating the, the person that you're interacting with, right? Um, but then STDs are a reality of it. And, and so connect this again with what is bringing someone to it um, you know, it could be just like hookup culture, like, you know, this gives me some pleasure, right? Uh, but what is it also doing? It's also giving you a quick fix in the need. Remember we talked about the innate yearning that someone has for this interaction. It's the false illusion of love. When you have love, true love from someone, when you receive true love from someone, even intimacy becomes far greater, a far more wonderful as an experience, as opposed to something mechanical that lasts a few minutes, right? And that's the goal you want to get to, a true substantive relationship. So we're talking about true substantive friendship, but also in terms of interaction, you know, intimacy, a true substantive relationship. When you're investing yourself in this person, right? They're investing themselves in you. That's the goal, but um, if you find yourself uh, stuck in these things, then again, uh, let's talk. But I also connected this to domestic abuse. Domestic abuse is a huge, huge problem in our, in our community, and this is a problem at multiple levels. One is, of course, physical abuse. And then on top of that, people will use that ayah in the Quran to justify a lot of this. So one particular ayah uh, related to you know, a breakdown um, where you have justification um, to, in the prophet's teaching, peace be upon him, take a, the equivalent of a toothbrush and tap your wife. We can have that whole conversation. The point I'm making is that in many of our, our households, you have a whole lot of physical abuse, but in many more of our households, you have verbal abuse, right? And we also have theological abuse. 
that's when you're quoting Ayaz to, to justify what you're doing. And this is also similar to your point that someone feels like they're a complete failure if they have not accomplished 100% in terms of super Islam, right? That's theological abuse, right? Because if you're teaching someone, especially a child, that if you don't get an A plus in your Islam, then you're a failure, you're probably also teaching them uh, that in other aspects of their life too, right? My favorite example of this, my favorite horrible example of this, I've shared with some of you, uh, a friend of mine, well, I haven't talked to him in about 15 years, but we were at some dinner party and his nephew came running by playing <laughs> and he hit his head on the table. And then his uncle says, That's be that happened because Allah hates you. <laughs> SubhanAllah, yeah, yeah. And the kid just looks at his uncle for, for a few moments. It's like, yeah, don't forget this. And the uncle I know was joking, right? I don't know if the kid knew. And, and then the kid just went, and I'm sure that stuck in the kid's sense of self, right? And, and so theological violence is also, uh, so how does theological violence play uh, out in terms of the marriage? We have many hadith that people misquote. They meaning they might quote the hadith authentically, but wrong context to effectively say that women are bad, men are good. What are some of them? There are more women in hell than men. Ah, suddenly it's all, we, all, we all remember it, right? <laughs> that women have less intelligence than men, okay? These are all misquoted hadith, meaning you can quote it word for word correctly, but you're misapplying it, therefore you're misquoting it, okay? If we had time, we'd go through all these, but what happens is that the theology is already there, and the theology is your own superiority over your spouse, so then you find whatever passages support it. Say so, Yeah, it's confirmation bias, perfect term. Yeah, that's exactly it. And so, so then this goes further. How many sisters do I know who are told you have to go to med school, but you're not allowed to practice? Then what's the point of going to med school, right? Yeah, to find a man, right? But you're not going to practice. So, like, so basically what happens is that the woman has to get a loan to go to med school to become a doctor, so she has to pay off her med school loan. So her only reason for going to med school is to pay off the loan to go to med school. Like that's the, that's, I mean, that's the bizarro end result logic that play, takes place in, in a lot of uh, our communities. And, and so, again, I'm not giving you cures for this. Rather, I'm saying that if you, are find, if you find yourself in a house full of tyranny, don't be surprised if you have problems of faith. That many of you heard from me that 100% over the last two, dec two decades or so, Cases of students who've come to me complaining about problems of faith, the issue has never been academic arguments. They might start with academic arguments, meaning how do you believe in a God that controls everything and then yet also have free will? Then how is that fair on the day of judgment? Things like that, right? Uh, how is God good? And then you have evil in the world, stuff like that. Those are never the real issues. The real issues 100% of the time have been what we call a scarred heart. And a scarred heart could be because of dealing with tragedy in their life, or it could be dealing with tyranny in their life, or resent, and the resent is usually against the parents and usually, usually against the father, right? Like when I'm giving those talks to your age group, I'm speaking of it from that perspective. When I'm speaking to the parents' age, I'm always saying to the parents, okay, what do your children think of you? What do your children honestly think of you? Yes, ma'am. Because everything, he's like, va, va, va. Mashallah, so good. Yeah. 
Okay. You're saying a hypothetical father would be saying that. Not necessarily. Okay, okay. Mashallah, right. Mashallah. Okay, so, so uh, many would. And an example of that, so at uh, Masjid over here, I gave Jummah Khutbah, and I asked the question to all these parents, you know, how many times have you told your child I love you? Right? Because in this society, you need to hear it. We're a very audiovisual society. We as parents, speaking as a parent, will break our backs to give our children anything. Okay? Uh, but our children also need to hear it. And so then, as in some of you heard the story, as is usually the case after I give a chutzpah, there's a whole line of people who want to talk to me, usually to tell me everything that I've said wrong, right? Uh, and one particular person in this one line said, okay, I got this 13-year-old who just isn't behaving. He's out of control. What do I do? And I asked him, how many times do you tell him I love you? He goes, I know, he knows I love him. <laughs> and I was like, did you not listen to the chutzpah that I just gave, literally just now? Um, or... You know, why should I tell him I love him? He doesn't clean his room, he doesn't do his schoolwork, he doesn't do such and such. One example I'm thinking of that is then a kid who ran away from home and then he was, he, he was killed, right? And, and the point is that, yeah, a lot of people um, do push back. And in the simple math is, uh, and think about this, when you and Shala become parents, if you're not, uh, when your child does good, you should praise your child, and your child should recognize that your child is being praised for doing good. When your child does bad, you reprimand your child, you punish your child, and your child should recognize that they're being punished for what they did. What often happens is, don't do this, don't do that, and then it messes up the wiring in the child's brain. And that's why they often think that they are worthless, that they can't do anything right. Or, you know, this happens with millennials, that, you know, it's, or no, I'll say the children of my generation of parents, um, is that they respond by becoming overly praising, and then the child becomes all entitled, right? But it's, I mean, children aren't stupid. It should, there should be a simple logic. I did this right, I got praised, I this, did this wrong, I got punished. It's actually that simple. But if you splurge on praise that's not earned, then that's when you have a whole culture of kids who need trophies. Wallahi, I have, to this day, I'm in my mid-40s, I have never gotten a trophy in my whole life. Like, never. Okay, and I'm not asking for you guys to suddenly give me, you know, sorry? What'd you say? It's a, it's a glass thing, I don't know, the, count that as a trophy. This was for being awesome, mashallah. Yeah, mashallah, mashallah, mashallah. Why didn't you tell us? I don't know, it wasn't a trophy. No, so, okay, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll play the thing for you. But anyway, okay, back to this. So the point is that, um, but now you have a culture where like every kid gets a trophy. A friend of mine, he was telling me, he said he went to his, his kid's basketball game. And this is what he's telling me about his kid. He said, I have never seen such a bad team in my whole life. This is the worst game of basketball I've ever seen. And then every kid got a trophy, right? But anyway, but you see the point that I'm making. But I'm also not giving you an excuse to think about how horrible your parents are, okay? Okay, some of you are like, oh, toba toba, right? But that is a form of violence, okay? When you are reprimanding a child for something the child didn't earn to be reprimanded. But then that translates how, that's what the child learns, this is what you do. And then that plays out when the child is an adult with the child's spouse, okay? And so what am I saying? Think of whatever issues any of you have with your parents, they will play out in your marriage. Okay. And so a lot of times in our marriages, we don't even realize this, 
we're interacting with our spouse as though it is our parent. And we don't even realize we're doing this. And whatever we didn't get from our parents, like validation or whatever, we don't even realize that's what we're searching for in the spouse. And then we get frustrated that we don't get it. But we don't know we're looking for it. Then we don't get it. And the spouse doesn't know we're looking for it. And that leads to very intense frustration. Okay. So I'm talking about the consequences of domestic violence. First consequence is that the victim internalizes it. Okay. And then the second consequence is that the victim then takes that as normal, which then means the victim starts raising the child that way too. Okay. So it has a legacy that goes on. Okay. But this is another thing that is taking place in our community that is uh, actually in many ways, I think this is harder to address than suicide and self-harm because um, how do you get someone out of a bad relationship? if they can't bring themselves to get out of it. Yes, sir. Um, is this necessarily only from parents, or is it also like figures of authority, or like their own peers? And like totally. In that? I mean, it'll affect how you interact with everyone. And the reason I'm mentioning spouses is because that's your most intimate relationship. It'll affect your friendship. You know, you might have someone who's like this chaplain-type figure who just like tears into people, makes jokes about them. And he may not even realize that he's probably just, you know, making up for something that he missed out on life, you know. Maybe he has an inferiority complex for growing up as, you know, the man from Pakistan or something like that. I ran for, for, uh, for vice president in junior high, and so my slogan was vote for the man from Pakistan. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh yeah. But I lost, came in last place. Oh, no, not even close. I didn't even know if I voted for myself, but yeah. Yeah. But, sorry? I may have got one vote from somebody, you know, some sympathy vote. What else do we got? <clears throat> um, so eating disorders, um, the other point that I'm going to add, which relates to this whole sense of self, is another, when I'm speaking of the prophet, peace be upon him, as our standard, all of us do have somewhere in our imagination someone or something as the standard. Okay? And this relates to your point about celebrities. So everyone in our imaginations, in our sense of self, takes someone as the standard of beauty. Okay? So collectively in our society, we have some people that regard as the standards of beauty. Ahant is laughing. He's like, it's my standard of beauty is Muzaffar. Anyway, so, 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 so according to our society, who are some people that we would say these people are looked at as the standards of beauty? Name some people. David Beckham, definitely. Tom Cruise, yeah. Beyonce. Who else? Who? Kylie Jenner. Which one's Kylie? The one with the lips. Oh yeah, I've heard about the one with the big lips. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's like, yeah, yeah. The what is it? Beyonce is up there. Who else? Who? Priyanka Chopra. Yeah, should be up there. Who else? Brad Pitt. Brad Pitt. Sorry. Yes, I agree wholeheartedly, especially with the baseball game. Who else? Who else? Who would be some men that, according to our society, are beautiful, ideal men? Barack Obama. But yeah, he would totally be up there. Yeah, I think he's way more, way more good-looking with gray hair than he would. I don't even like looking at photos of him with black hair. Now he looks so dignified, right? Yeah. Who else? Any and whatever. Okay, let's make it wider. Who are some people that our society says uh, lift up as ideal people? Yeah, Justin Trudeau, and that's like the best example because, 
Yeah, because he's no one talks about him in terms of his politics. Everyone's like, look, he's trying to be Indian now. Okay, he's a neoliberal, right? I mean, these are almost as bad. These are almost as bad as neoconservatives in terms of just ruining the country. But everyone's like, no, he's Justin Trudeau. He loves minorities and all that stuff. He's horribly bad. Yeah. He's, he's, he has horribly bad policies, but he's fantastic in terms of PR. His PR is magnificent. Yeah, look at his policies. I remember I pointed this out on Facebook. Everyone was like, hater, hater, hater. And then the Canadian guy goes, thank you, right? Yeah. So who else, who else does our society say are some ideal people? Emma Watson. I'm sorry? Love to love. Mandela. I mean, but a lot. Mandela would have been up there. Leonardo, he'd be up there. You know, wouldn't it be cool if his name was like Leo DiCaprio, then it rhymes? You know? Okay, never mind. Yeah. Okay, so Beyonce. What is about her that makes her celebrated? Yeah, so tell me, what are some of these things? What does she have that Hillary Clinton does not have? Like magic. <laughs> She's got the magic. She can sing. She's beautiful. Hillary Clinton is not. Uh huh. Okay. Beyond you know she. Uh huh. So if Hillary Clinton looked like Beyonce, would she have gotten elected? Okay. So in 2000, sorry. So 2008. Okay. Uh, there were two rim women running for, for, for political office. One was Hil Hillary Clinton on the left. Who was on the right? Palin. Sarah Palin. So I had this friend who is a super hardcore Tea Party guy, and he's a super Trump supporter now, and some of you are going to say, how's your friend? But okay, that's beside the point. And, and so I told him, you have to convince me to like Sarah Palin. So what did he do? He sent me a bunch of photos of her. <laughs> Nothing about policy or anything like that. Here's a photo of her standing. Here's a photo of her walking. And that's, that was his argument, right? Sarah Palin was presented as this beauty queen who was stupid, right? But how is Hillary Clinton presented? As this, like, unwoman-like woman, right? And she probably lost a lot of votes because of that public portrayal. When she ran for senator, however... She skyrocketed in politics, because what was part of her narrative at the time? That was right after it came out that Bill Clinton had cheated on her with Monica Lewinsky. And so part of her narrative at that time was, you know, she's this victim, but she's loyal and everything. But now she's very, very hated as a super corrupt politician, and gender is part of it. And what am I saying here? That our society has very aggressive ideals. So when we use a term like alpha male, we're basically saying if you don't fit the formula of an alpha male, you're being conditioned to think that there's something wrong with you. So what are the attributes of an alpha male in our society? Aggressive. Aggressive, strong, all the things that go with that. What else? Head of the family. Head of the family, which is also related to strong and aggressive. What? Breadwinner, winner, which is also related to strength. Sorry? Not too emotional. Very controlled emotion, but if he cries, then it's something great. Right? If a tear comes down while they're giving a speech, oh man. Right? What else? Territorial slash loyal. Sure. Yeah. So very, very firm. What else? When I think of American society and what it values, I just think she did a great in that character that is like literally the alpha male. 
haven't haven't read it or seen it. But, no, yeah. but like the <laughs> yeah, you walked into that. I totally set you up. Yeah. So, but I don't tell me what is that character like? Well, like again, I'm like too territorial, super yeah. aggressive. But like everyone perceives the character in general. So when, you, when the trailer came out, I was like, oh my god, it's so hate. He's such a great man. What's it gonna like? Yeah, yeah. Like, on Twitter, people were saying, mm -hmm. I was like, what's wrong with y'all? Mm -hmm. yeah. So yeah, like that's like you know what I mean. Someone borderline abusive or extra. That's I mean that's what it, it often produces. Um, and so, but that's the attribute of the hero, and he's white, right? Um, even, okay, if you talk to, ask uh, any 10-year-olds you know, their entire life, Obama's the president of the United States until now, and ask them when they think of an American, what does that American look like, and they'll all tell you blonde hair, blue eyes, right? Even though the president of the United States is not that, but that's what's in the air. But what am I saying? That when you're growing up in a society, okay, uh, especially as very visually aggressive as our society is, if you are not the alpha male, you are being conditioned to think that there's something wrong with you. Which means that if you're a woman, then by definition you're being conditioned to think there's something wrong with you. Right? That there's something incomplete about you. That there's something flawed about you. Now connect that with what we spoke about at the beginning, that you have this innate need, this innate yearning, and so how does that translate for a lot of people? It then gets directed against yourself as self-hate. Right? And I'm saying you're conditioned. I'm saying living in America is a traumatic experience. Okay? Why is it different than other societies? Because of how strong our media is. Okay. And then I'm saying we further traumatize ourselves with social media. All right. Think about how many times you look at a dead kid on social media. Right. That affects you. I mean, these are realities of the world. But this also affects your sense of well-being. Okay. And so then this plays out in other things like eating disorders. Something that I used to do that I got to restart is whenever someone would come to my office, I'd always keep like a brownie or granola bar to try to get the, per to get the person to eat it. Because that becomes a test for me. Um, whatever issues they're coming with, um, what's really going on? Is it eating disorders? And I'll give you an example, one of many. So a student came to me asking me you know, uh, for help in fasting. Okay? And she said she just can't fast. It's too hard for her. She can't make it through the whole day. And I asked her, can you do suhoor? Can you do seri? And she's like, yeah, I can. And I said, well, what do you eat? Can you eat a sandwich? She's like, no, I mean, and she goes, why? I asked why. She goes, well, it's got these two pieces of bread and such and such. And then something caught my attention. So then I asked her, on a good day, how many calories do you get? Oh, no, on a given day, how many calories do you get, you consume? She says 600, OK? Then I asked her, OK, um, how many calories do you try to get? What's her answer? Zero, right? If you looked at her and you didn't know what to look for, you would not know that she had an eating disorder, right? Um, and the point is that this is very, very common in our community. Yeah. These are real things. And what do they relate to? Your sense of self, right? And how do you rebuild such a person? You have to rebuild them from scratch with this key focus, like we're saying, your innate value. But these are real things. If you know people in our community, like if you know people on campus, try to get them to talk to me. The issue with eating disorders is that it's something so deep that it's very hard to even convince someone to get help. Right? Um, I even have students who have eating disorders and related problems who themselves are therapists. A lot of people who actually become therapists are people who've gone through therapy or who've needed therapy, but 
but then they don't go. And they'll even say, yeah, I know I'm supposed to go, I just can't go. I'm even a professional in this, but I just can't get myself to go. That's a harder issue to address. That's even harder to address than domestic violence. So I'm saying suicide ideation is easier to address than someone who's in a violent relationship, which is easier, easier to address than someone with eating disorders and things like, I'm even gonna categorize self-cutting more related to that, but eating disorder because it relates to your sense of beauty, that you're never thin enough to be uh, beautiful. And this is also, it gets difficult because I can say to my daughters, you're beautiful. I can say to my sisters, you're beautiful. I can't say that to a student here. That's inappropriate, right? So that's a tougher one to address. So I could just say, ladies, gentlemen, you're beautiful. Right, 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 right. But the point is that, yeah, I haven't figured out how to address that. Yes? I feel like the problem with eating disorders is that you look for that validation from others, yeah. usually guys, so you end up in <coughs> relationships yep. or like... It all goes together, 100% correct. Just trying to get multiple partners, just yeah. anyone who will tell you you're beautiful or yeah. you know, you'll just like do anything they say or just fall for them. Yeah. Because that you're... You didn't get it from, from, from dad, and so now you keep searching for it from people to take that role. And it becomes serial abusive relationships. Yes? I also think for uh, at least the younger uh, teenagers, uh, they have that peer pressure from others. Oh, totally. Yeah. This is how you're supposed to. Mm -hmm. If you don't look like that, you're this, you're that, or mm -hmm. you don't fit in with that. And so for this, um, I'd say especially to the men, um, I mean, everybody with all your children, um, you have to, you have the responsibility of building your daughter's self-esteem, right? If you don't do it, it's not gonna happen, right? And what happens is sometimes we get all awkward, we don't wanna have those conversations. You have to have all those conversations with, with your daughters. But then, I'll also say, um, these misogynistic, chauvinist men are all raised by women, right? It's something patriarchy gets internalized. And what happens essentially often is that the daughters don't get sufficient validation from the fathers, and the sons get too much validation, right? And think about the scenario that that creates, right? But seriously, think about it. I mean, look at everything that we're talking about, not from the perspective of you and your life. I'm saying look at it from you as a parent, right? That these are things you have to be conscious of. Because okay? then what will happen is that then your kids are going to come to me, or whoever is my equivalent at that point. And at that point, it's usually actually too late, right? Meaning so many things... Um, so many issues that are presented to me in my office really actually just get traced back to the parents. That if the parents put in time to their children rather than throw toys at them, um, a lot of these personal issues would not be there. Correct. So we're at 9.50, and the big one we still haven't talked about is, is homosexuality. Okay, so I'm going to just touch on it very briefly, but we'll probably have to talk about that at some other, some other event. Um, I'm going to give you some really quick bullet points. Okay. Really, really, really quickly. Number one, um, I don't like the categorization of homosexuality. Why? Because how do you describe someone who is physically attracted to the opposite sex, but emotionally attracted to their own? That doesn't work in the category of homosexuality. Okay, homosexuality is a modern category. So what is it that's forbidden in Islam? It's sodomy. Okay, the general term is liwat. Okay, it's sodomy is forbidden. Okay. But, so that's point number one. Um, so move away from it from the categories, uh, modern categories. Number two, it is a real thing. It's not 
uh, necessarily a lifestyle choice. In my experience, I've yet to meet a gay man who chose to be gay. Okay. Every single person I've met, uh, they even say, and including, uh, I'll say almost every lesbian I've met did not choose either. I'm thinking of one person who I kind of feel like she actually chose. But every other case, uh, I had one lesbian student who said, why would I choose this? Okay. So keep that point in mind. This is a real thing. Uh, um, we can say it's related to childhood trauma. We could say it's related to trauma in the pregnancy. We could say it's related to something else. I don't know. I'm saying it's not a choice. Okay. To act on it does become a choice. Okay. Now, I've only had one case in my life where I could tell someone, this is your test from Allah. Right? Someone might have uh, an addiction to alcohol, and you could say to them, this is your test from Allah. Allah does not give you a test you can handle. I've only had one case where I felt that I could say that to a person because I knew this kid who, um, who basically, he, he knew he was gay since he was like 15. He even got married to a woman, even had kids, and then he said, no, I have to come out now, right? And, and in fact, separately, uh, she and he were both my students. And in his case, I already knew he had a level of understanding of faith where I could say to him, this is your test, okay? Part of it's because he's already in the marriage. I said, you knew this going into your marriage. You can't just walk away, right? But in other cases, um, I address those literally case by case, right? And I don't say this is okay, but I do figure out, okay, what can we do that's better? So I'm gonna give you a scenario. Suppose you have someone who's interested in Islam, okay? And they tell you, I'm gay, I'm in a gay marriage, and I have no plan to leave it would you tell them to become Muslim? And they're saying, I don't see myself ever leaving this. Okay. Uh, Tahami, you said yes? Why? Okay. Why? Yes. Okay. So that might be their thing, but then what are you going to tell like everybody who sins in okay. Islam that you can't be a Muslim? Okay. Okay. What are you going to say? Certainly, I would tell them to become Muslim. Like yeah. Can't hurt your chances. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> that's if the key anything, point. It, it, it increases your chances. Mm -hmm. You know, and that alone is that's the first step towards mm -hmm. possibly mm -hmm. changing that fact about your life. Mm -hmm. So yeah, the answer is absolutely yes. They should <clears throat> become Muslim. They should absolutely become Muslim. Islam's way bigger. Okay. Um, on issues like gay marriage and, something, uh, and such, this now I'm giving you holding my opinion. This is I'm not giving you a, an opinion from tradition. Uh, I don't think it's, uh, I mean, so, I mean, I'm very open about the fact that I can't support it. Uh, I've been asked to conduct gay marriages and I tell them I can't do it, right? Um, I also don't think it's necessarily uh, an issue that we have to oppose. This is I'm giving you purely my opinion especially compared to other issues. So the exact example I'll give you is every time I drive down 294, I pass by Rivers Casino, okay? And I'm literally saying, I'm literally getting furious saying, astaghfirullah, astaghfirullah, because you got this gigantic casino there, right? That I think is a far bigger problem than gay marriage, right? I don't think the case of, of La, uh, Lut alayhi salam um, is a fair analogy in terms of gay marriage, but that's, a, that's I'm just introducing these for, for discussion, yes? What do you say if you have like a friend who is gay but left the religion and the reason is God? See if you can get there and talk to me. <laughs> Same thing, right? 
because it's not as it's that's usually the the reason, but that's also how they've been conditioned, right? And 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 so so the point is that they need a whole lot of compassion, and some of it's also understanding. Yeah. Yes. Um, you know, what do you say to those? You were saying earlier that it's not a choice, right? Uh, does that go all the way to the idea that it, I was born with it? Um, so. I, I would say I don't know if I would if uh, the data would support that I'm born with it, but I wouldn't be surprised if it does. And when I'm saying it's not a choice, I'm basically saying they didn't choose to do this. It's not voluntary. So it could be going that far, right? Um, it could be caused by something else, right? So some people might say it's genetic. I don't know if there's enough data to support it being genetic. Um, um, but you know, some theories are uh, childhood abuse, and I could be wrong. Some theories include uh, uh, events in the pregnancy. And my key point is that I don't see it as a choice that the person's making. I should also say that it's not binary. You're not either gay or straight. It's literally a whole spectrum. So imagine one person is 100% attracted to the opposite sex, uh, both physically, emotionally, spiritually, what have you. Another person might be 99% attracted to the opposite sex and 1% attracted to their own. And think of it as a whole spectrum, right? That's been also my experience too. Very, very, very different levels. The guy who, who, you know, who was married, he says for him it's binary. And I asked him, what is it like when you're with your wife physically? He said to me, probably the way you would feel if you were with a man. He's repulsed physically by his wife, right? And I know, I know him very well, I know his wife very well. Turning to a Desi accent, I know him very well. I know his <laughs> wife very well, and in his case, I completely believe it. Right? What, yes. What would you say uh, about individuals who like we live in a time where, where homosexuality is? It's, it's all over it's, 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 you, you can't, and you have to be very careful about what you say because yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, so so how do we you know, understand our own Islam? Uh, I'll give you a great scenario, yeah. for instance. Uh, when the shooting happened in uh, Orlando, Orlando, uh, CIOGC, gosh, I shouldn't have done that. Anyway, some people have made some statements uh, in, in support of, because they felt compelled to, you mm -hmm. know, uh, after what happened, in support of the social community. And, and yeah, that was me. Well, it wasn't quite, you're talking about someone else in particular who, yeah. who was brought to the event. Yeah. So, to give you background, so after Orlando, uh, I co hosted an iftar. Right, where uh, I personally invited a whole bunch of leaders from, from the Muslim community who were basically coming out of trusted me, and then also invited a number of Muslims who self-identify as LGBT. Right? And the goal of the event is, okay, all you Muslim leaders, listen to them. Listen to say whatever it is they say. We're not gonna talk about anything related to fiqh or anything like that, and my opinions are pretty textbook, you know, Islamic opinions and all these, right? And I just want you to listen. I want you to hear what their stories are. Because one thing I'll say, I've talked to, over the years I've given talks to literally probably just about every single type of audience, including genocide survivors and every faith group and everything. I've never seen a group of people that looked as traumatized as a group of LGBT people. They look like they weren't, didn't just survive a genocide, they look like they're still in the genocide, right? And some of that is related to this point where they're being told, you're a freak, God hates you. Right? We're actually getting genocided in Chechnya. Yeah, no, I've heard that. This, yeah, it's, it's, it sounds pretty horribly bad, right? And so I just wanted Chicago Muslim leadership just to hear them talk, right? Problem is, some people got to the microphone and they said things that were definitely not the, the most uh, um, 
uh, intelligent thing to say, right? I we need to review all these things. I mean, that's not what they meant, but that's what was heard, and right. and so then it caused uh, an unfortunate controversy. I mean, the event itself was controversial for, for for many people, because I personally invited people. We didn't make this like a CIOGC or anything like that. Right. You know, I said, "All you guys come in, and just listen," and that was the, that was the goal. My goal was actually to do multiple events like this, one on the topic of race, bring in Chicago Muslim leadership, and have people from across the black community talk. And you guys just listen and hear their stories. Right? It was the, goal, the goal was to be a whole series of these events. Yeah. Uh, but then I put it on hold. You know, I'm still going to do them, inshallah. Inshallah. Yeah. yeah. Um, last few points with Ethan and Aisha. Um, I guess and more, more general from that, just dealing with apostasy. When you have somebody you really love who leaves Islam, um, I don't know, it's, it's just like a weird problem that it feels like there's no solution to even though you still really care about the person. Uh, in general, what do you tell people? Compassion. Rahma. Because like I said, the vast majority of people who leave the faith, it's not because of academic arguments, it's because of a scarred heart, which can translate as lack of having enough Rahma, compassion, in their life. Right? It manifests when they are hit with tragedy, it manifests at other points. And it's not just, oh, I love you one time. It's, it's a lot of compassion. Right? And usually it is the compassion that will win over rather than the academic arguments. It might come in the form of academic arguments, but, but what the person is receiving is this person respects me. Right? This person respects my intelligence, values me as a person. That's what a lot of people need in our society. Right? Um, that, in my experience, is far more therapeutic than most academic lines are quoting scripture. Yeah. Aisha. Um, so if you're a parent of someone who's gay or lesbian and you can't like, accept it or condemn it, yeah. what's your opinion? So this is a point I also make to parents. Parents aren't, re aren't as ready to hear it, mm -hmm. right? I mean, it's interesting. Um, um, I had this one student who came out as lesbian, and she also wanted to become Muslim. And her parents were super conservative Catholics. And she said, my parents will barely accept me as lesbian, but they're never going to accept me as Muslim. So she's still holding off on being Muslim. This is like five years later, right? Um, if they reach out to me, then I'll get into the conversations. And I'll still get more into the compassion point, right, um, that you have to address this. This is a real thing. Okay? It's not going to go away. And more often than not, the child runs away. Right? I have a bunch of examples where the, the son or daughter basically left the house and or left the dean. Yeah. And, but usually, you know, parents aren't, aren't, aren't willing or ready to have that conversation. Yeah. Laiba. So with topics like these, and then also just like a number of other topics um, that we can literally list off, um, they are important for us to have uh, within the community, within like a range of the community, but yeah. one thing that I always face, like, come to deal with, especially when it comes to like organizations where you're planning these events. Um, everyone's at a different level of awareness, yeah. right? So how do we, how do we get to a point where we're having these conversations, having these like events? Because of course, those who've never been exposed to them yeah. will find these events as radical because yeah, yeah if not heretical, yeah. Who have a higher level of 
you'll find those basic level events as not good enough mm -hmm. or as taking like the like like using them as an excuse to like check it off your list but you're not doing enough for yeah. the community. Mm -hmm. So as people well, I mean I'm Alhamdulillah leaving the leadership soon. But um, for like the future of MSA, not just MSA but like in our communities at large, like how do we have those programs where and I know you're not gonna satisfy everyone, but how do you what strategy do you Yeah. Have? So, okay, so a couple things. I mean, this is a good way to, to end the whole conversation. Uh, the burden of caring Islam is not only on my shoulders. It is on every single one of you. And one point to think about is that think of whatever criticisms you have of the community. If you have these same criticisms two years from now, five years from now, then the fault is yours, right? If you have not done something to address it. Every single one of us has 100,000 other things going on. I'm too young, I'm still working on this, I'm still working on that. Total excuse, it's nothing but an excuse. And so you own the responsibility of this community as much as I do. The only thing that I have more might be more uh, knowledge, maybe, might be more uh, reputation, maybe, and more age, definitely. Uh, but you guys have more energy, right? More imagination. I don't know if you guys have more imagination than me, though. You know, I've listened to some things you guys say. And, <laughs> no, so, but the point is that um, everyone has to look at this as your responsibility. Because I can't stand the conversations where it's like, the community needs to do this. I mean, because I, I start hearing like a Desi accent, even though it's a bunch of people <laughs> raised here. And the community needs to do that, and the community needs to X and Y. And then, you know, five years later, same people are saying the same thing. And it's basically, when I hear that, I hear a bunch of people who actually have no interest in helping anybody but themselves right? You guys all do this, and I'm going to go focus on the my life, right? That's, uh, uh, so that everybody, uh, all of you have this responsibility, right? Now, second thing, uh, which is the same advice that I gave to the MSA last week, uh, all of you should make it your project to be mentors for other people. And if there are people on the planet Earth who are younger than you, then you are automatically qualified to be a mentor, <laughs> right? So the answer is yes, unless we're in that movie Children of Heaven where nobody is you guys have no idea what I'm talking about. Okay. <coughs> toba, toba. Anyway, so, so the point I'm making, have you at least seen Children of Heaven, Donna? You would love that movie. That's totally like up your head. Why? Because where all the adults go away, actually, this year, it's called Gone. Gone? Or The Leftovers? Which one's Children of Heaven? Children of Heaven is where no one's born anymore. Children of Men. Children of Men. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Children of Heaven is that Iranian movie. Iranian movie. Sorry, Children of Men. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. But it was like the heaven. Anyway, anyway, so. So, no, 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 my point is that all of you uh, see it as your responsibility to be mentors for other people. And the easiest way, especially those of you who are at Loyola, uh, or so you who used to be at Loyola, uh, look at whatever it is that you feel that I've done for you, and you, the, you owe it to me to pay it forward. Right? Yes? It's funny you're saying that, because um, I'll like, lecture my little sister all the time, and I think she doesn't hear anything. You know, I'm just like, oh, you did this wrong. See, you gotta, you gotta pull out the Quran belt, and, and then. It, it was funny, yesterday, she, she, my friend told me, she's like, oh, guess what your sister said? And then she called her out, and then my sister was like, yeah, you know, I'm kind of scared of you, but like, you know, you're always right. <laughs> she's ah, like, Alhamdulillah. <laughs> she's That's like, exactly. I'm glad, you know, you tell me these things, or else, like, wow. you know, I'd be lost. I don't think I'd <laughs> ever admit that to an elder. I yeah. was really surprised she yeah. admitted it to me, but she was like, oh. you know, I take your advice, even though I, like, fight you about it. Oh, yeah, good, Alhamdulillah. You know, and she's like, you kind of keep me in check. Good, good, Alhamdulillah. And I was like, oh. Yeah. So then having said that, I mean, so Laiba, so having put those principles in place, this is your responsibility, and you have to mentor people. Um, 
Then you got to make each of your events targeted. And what I mean is you don't have an event just for the sake of having an event. You, you try to have your project with specific targets that you can specifically measure and reach, right? So if it's an, an event just for the sake of an event, then you're going to have a lot of frustration because you're going to have people who are unhappy because it's too, too loose or too conservative. Um, but if it's specifically targeted, then you can figure out whether or not you've, you've reached your target, right? And then you're going to have your big long-term target and then all the, all the short steps on the way there. Ta-da. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's hard. It's hard for an MSA environment, but I think you still can do that. Whether it's in terms of numbers of people or types of people, what have you. Sure. But you still like, do it. Being, it's also yeah. like being part of a team, right? Yeah. Like even not only are you a community, but like even as and it's not just within MSA, but like yeah. also in like. Uh, like communities, like yeah. there's a group of people in charge or like making decisions, but each one of those people also comes with their own background and bias yeah. and priorities. So how do you like... That's, you make it a team effort and you will get with uh, better targets and such. And so the last point I'd say related to that is seriously take into consideration every single bit of criticism you get. It may be that some of that criticism is coming from Allah through that person, even though that person might be wretched. Yeah. Yes? I just want to make it a very brief uh, asking uh, inshallah what we want to do because I understand uh, every semester or maybe every six months or two a year or whatever that new boards are changed within MSAs yeah. so we're trying to do something where maybe every six months with CIOGC we have an MSA dinner mm. for all of the people in the uh, cool. MSAs just so that we could refresh and keep kn knowing who are the new people within mm -hmm. the MSAs and then build a relationship. So, inshallah, uh, some of you who are part of the MSA uh, do expect some type of uh, corresponding with me. Okay, very good. Yes, uh, why don't you retell everybody who you are and everything yeah, for people who came late? Yeah, so basically, um, I'm Jamil Kareem. Uh, I am the youth coordinator for CIOGC. This is Brother Willie. Uh, and what is CIOGC? Uh, CIOGC, uh, the worst acronym on the face <laughs> of this planet. Not to be confused with Kojic. Uh, that stands for the Council of Islamic Organizations of Greater Chicago. Uh, inshallah, we could change that in the future. But, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, aside from that, you know, one thing that they're trying to do, and I think it's a good thing that they're trying to do, is reinvigorate their 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 work towards the youth. And youth being, uh, they they measure it from being anyone not older than thirty, still in that that twenty age uh, discrimination. Range, um, <laughs> So that excludes me, but uh, definitely. Not me. Huh? No, I'm kidding, <laughs> But definitely, we, we want to do more things, and one thing that we, we notice it's a lack of is a lack of a, uh, we don't have a relationship with the MSAs. You know, we're really trying to improve that. You know, we wanted to do that through the expos that we were doing, um, and we also, this uh, Clearing Up Controversy, a uh, whole lecture series is based off of the MSAs and working with them mm -hmm. and trying to build a relationship. So at least for the youth department, that's what we're trying to do. And uh, yeah, that's about it. Okay, very good. So just before we end with dua, your last assignment. Uh, yes, sir. You were supposed to give us your top, top five list. Top five uh, Top five taboo topics. Uh, I think LGBT I put on that list. Uh, I think race would be on that list. Uh, I think... Um, 
the problems of making our community focus on activism, I put on that list. Like in the younger generation, everyone's getting politically involved. Now everyone, or the older generation, everybody's getting politically involved. And now it's all honor, um, idealizing activism. And in, in both cases, there's no focus on development of your heart, right? Um, I think uh, female scholarship is one of the taboo topics. Everybody complains we don't have any female scholars, but no one is willing to send their daughters to become female scholars. Um, <coughs> and I do think um, the big questions of Islamic governance are also very important, which, which Abdul Malik addressed, right? I'd say those are the big five for me that the community has to talk about. No one wants to. Yeah. But that's just literally off the top of my head. Okay, so your assignment before you leave this room, every man in this room has to have hugged every other man in this room. Every woman in this room has to have hugged every woman in this room. Introduce yourself. Yeah, look at all these, these uh, looks I'm getting from everyone. I want to go home. Okay, so we'll do a very short dua, and then, and, and if you don't know them, introduce them, give them your name, and, and just notice how yummy it feels to receive a hug, even if I'm making you do it. Okay. I've already hugged you. Too bad, you gotta hug it again. All right, Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu wa la ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka natubi ilayk. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu wa la ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka natubi ilayk. Subhanakallahumma, glory to you, O Allah, wa bihamdika, praise and gratitude is to you. Nashadu wa la ilaha illa anta, we bear witness there is no God but you. Nastaghfiruka, we seek your forgiveness. Wa natubu ilayk, and we turn to you. All right, may Allah tell the word to you all. And so get to the hugging. Wa akhir da'wana, and alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Thank you.